Now, many of you will have heard of that extraordinary uh, man from Bristol called George Mueller, who was a German by birth, and he was one of the leaders of the early Brethren movement. And I was reading online this week about a Christian father who paid his daughter, he literally paid his daughter to read the biography of George Mueller because of the huge impact it had made on his life. George Mueller is most famous for the orphanages that he ran and also for his absolute dependence on God when it came to money. The most famous story was, was when they had run out of food in their orphanage, but Mueller insisted on setting the table for breakfast as usual. And he even said grace to give thanks for the food that wasn't there. And as he was praying, there was a knock on the door. The baker stood there and said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt that you didn't have bread for breakfast, and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at two o'clock this morning and baked some fresh bread and have brought it. Mr. Mueller thanked the baker, and no sooner had he left when there was a second knock at the door. It was the milkman, and he announced that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage, and he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so that he could empty his wagon and be able to repair it. Now, that story is just typical of all the things that happened in George Mueller's life. Throughout his lifetime, over one and a half million pounds went through George Mueller's hands, a huge amount for the 1800s. But when he died, his whole estate came to just 160 pounds because he had given away all the money so extravagantly. Now, there was a man who was extraordinarily faithful with money. And on this Giving Sunday, we want to talk together about how we can be faithful with our wealth, with our giving. And we want to get under the skin of, of why we sometimes struggle, all of us, myself included, to trust God with our wealth. We're looking at this very relevant passage, uncomfortably relevant, from Haggai chapter 1 this morning. And this passage really makes us ask a key question. Are we more concerned about our own comfort than we are about God's glory? Are we more concerned about our own comfort than we are about God's glory? That is the question that Haggai raises with the leaders of Israel. Israel had returned after 70 years of exile in Babylon, and they needed to rebuild what Babylon had destroyed. The problem was that the people had put the building of their own homes ahead of building the temple. Haggai's prophecies are clearly dated in verse 1 from the second year of King Darius, which we can pinpoint as August 520 BC. That is 18 years after King Cyrus had given the original decree that Israel could return to her homeland. So 18 years had come and gone, and still there was no sign of building a temple. 
and God wants to challenge His people. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So it's not that the people hadn't considered building the temple, but it seems that building their own homes and gaining financial security had taken priority. They were more concerned about their own comfort than they were about the glory of God. And so God challenges them through Haggai. Verse 4, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? This phrase, paneled houses, shows that the Israelites had put considerable detail and spent considerable money on their own homes while the temple was still a pile of rubble. Now, of course, the temple was the place where God among His people in the Old Testament. And so, this state of affairs was really a picture of Israel's relationship with God at this stage in their history. Even when the people had been in exile in Babylon, the people of Israel prayed toward the temple in Jerusalem where God dwelt. So important a place it was. And it should have been the people's highest priority to rebuild the temple when they got back to Israel. But they were more concerned about paneling their own homes, feathering their own nests, rather than putting God in His rightful place at the center of Israel's national life. And we know, don't we, that what Christians do with their finances has always been a yardstick for their devotion to Jesus Christ. There is no more practical sign of our love for God than how we spend our money. It's a very simple question for all of us, myself included. Do we spend more money on our own homes and our own comforts than we do on the work of God? Now, that work, of course, is more than just a building. It is our giving to missions work. It's our giving to Tilly Drone and all the ministries and staff of the church. It's also more than just finance. It's the time we spend serving in the church compared to the time we spend, say, planning a family holiday or looking after our savings portfolio. Now, of course, we need to plan for savings and holidays and family needs. And God's not telling the people here to stop building their houses. But He is saying, compare the amount of money you are spending on yourselves with what you are spending on God's work and His glory. Now, maybe in your life, you do give money sacrificially to God's work, and that is wonderful. But what does sacrificial giving really look like for a congregation like this? It's worth at least asking the question, does our giving, does our level of giving reflect the wealth in the area in which we live? This North Deeside corridor boasts some of the finest homes and highest living standards in the UK. And so God would expect, I guess, are giving in an area like this to be much more lavish than if we were living on a council estate. Some of us, of course, do live on council estates. Lavish living should lead to lavish giving. Does the current state of this church building reflect the area that we are in and the amount of money we spend on our own homes? 
That is the challenge of Haggai. Something should jar if our homes look immaculate, but we come to church to see buckets collecting drips from a leaky roof. And I know it does jar with many of us. This same principle, of course, applies to the professionalism that we exhibit at work during the week compared to our attitude to church service. If we're getting rave reviews at work, but we are lackluster about our church rotas and don't care whether we're there or not when it's our turn on the rota, there is something wrong, isn't there? If we drop everything to meet a family need or attend a family function, but we never attend the prayer meeting of the church, and we can't remember the last time we were at communion or visited someone in need from our home group, then we need to ask serious questions, don't we? Now, God is not saying don't attend family functions. And He's certainly not saying lower your standards at work. Excellence at work is part of our worship. We know that. We've said that many times here. But if work and family and home always get our best time and our best finance, and church is something we try and slip in around the edges, then surely God has a right to say you are more concerned about your own comfort than you are about my glory. Now, when it comes specifically to thinking about a new church building, which we're thinking about right now, I can understand people who say, and they have said it to me, let's not spend money on a lavish building. Let's spend that money on mission work in Africa or Europe instead, where they have so much less than we do. And I think that would be a conversation worth having. And if that's what we end up doing, we raise a lavish amount of money and we send it to missions work across the globe, then praise God. But just remember, and I've been thinking about this this week, just remember the story of the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with some very expensive perfume. We were singing about it, actually, earlier on. In that story, you'll remember, it was Judas who was indignant, and he said, could this money, all of this money, not have been spent on the poor? But Jesus didn't think that it was better to spend that lavish gift on the poor, not at that particular moment. That's not because Jesus didn't care for the poor, but Jesus wanted to celebrate a wealthy woman spending lavishly on him. He actually told her, you're preparing me for my burial. His, his death was coming up in just a few days. And I want us all to at least ask the question, and I ask myself this question, should we not spend lavishly on a building that isn't for us? It's for God and for worship and would be a visible witness to this community of the value we place on God in a very wealthy area. It's interesting that when Israel was living in a desert, God asked them to build a simple tent for Him to live in, a tent for worship called the tabernacle. A tent fitted the context in which they lived, wandering through a desert. Later on, however, in the days of Solomon, when Israel was at the wealthiest point in its history, Solomon built a stunning temple under the command of God to the glory of God, so much so it became a wonder in the local area. 
The Queen of Sheba came just to see it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should build something extravagant for the sake of it. But my guess is, and it's at least worth considering this in your mind, my guess is, if everyone at D-side gave to God on a level that we spend on ourselves, we could build something extraordinary. I saw a documentary a little while ago on the Crystal Cathedral. It's a church building in Orange County, California. And this church building is a phenomenal glass structure. The whole thing is glass. So much so that services can be seen for miles around as the light glistens through the glass. And it's such a stunning building that uh, I think it was NBC took a, a, a documentary team to go and, and interview the pastor. And they asked the pastor, how on earth could you afford to build such an amazing building? And the pastor, Robert Schuller, said, my people give 10%. That's it. In other words, it didn't take those particular wealthy Californians, it didn't take them to be hugely sacrificial to build something utterly amazing. The simple tithe, 10%, from that very wealthy membership was more than enough to build a stunning church that fitted in with the stunning surroundings of Orange County. Now, we are not Orange County, though Aberdeenshire has not been far away from that in the past. And especially, we are not Orange County following the recent struggles in the oil industry. But we have wealth. And whatever we do, whether we build or not, it is healthy to at least ask the question, are we more concerned about our own comfort than we are about God's glory? And the reason why we really need to ask that question is because in the second part of this passage, verses 5 to 11, Haggai teaches us this. It, it, it shocked me when I read this and discovered what it was really saying. Haggai teaches us that if we are more concerned about our own comfort and all the ways it manifests itself, if we are more concerned about our own comfort than we are about God's glory, God will make sure we are dissatisfied. He'll make sure we're dissatisfied. That's the message here. This prophetic oracle from Haggai comes at the end of the harvest in the month of August, and it hasn't been a good harvest Verse 6 says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. So despite all the efforts that the Israelites were putting into their own comfort, they were being frustrated. They weren't satisfied deep down. And God is getting them to ask the question, why? Why are you not satisfied? And the surprising answer is God intentionally withheld the harvest. God damaged the economy quite intentionally. Verse 9, he says, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, who blew it away? I blew it away, God saying that. It was God who gave a poor harvest. It was God who was responsible for the high rates of inflation. 
That's actually the meaning of verse 6. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. What a wonderful picture of the damage that inflation does. God was controlling the high levels of inflation. God was intentionally frustrating his own people's attempts to find economic security. Why? Why would God do such a thing? Verse 9, he says, because my own house, because of my own house that lies in ruins, while each one of you busies himself with his own house. That is why the heavens withhold their dew. I have called for a drought on the land. Isn't that amazing? God was making things financially difficult for his own people to wake them up to their spiritual apathy. Because these people were attempting to be satisfied without God. How can you do that? And God will not allow them to be satisfied with anything in this world outside of himself. And this is the principle. If we are more concerned about our own comforts as Christians than we are about God's glory, God will leave us dissatisfied. He will take away our satisfaction until we learn this sacred truth that we find true satisfaction in Him and Him alone. And this is the temptation we face all the time as Christians, to try and find satisfaction in things other than God. It might be finding the perfect marriage partner or having the perfect home or reveling in the progress of our children, or having the perfect career and having kudos in the city because I've got the job everybody else wants, or even enjoying the success of our sports team can be trivial stuff. All of these are good things. They are good gifts from our Creator. But when any of those things or an accumulation of those things become the thing that we are living for, that we think most about, that we're most passionate about, then they take the place that God alone should be occupying in our lives. We were not made, we were not created, we don't function well if we are being satisfied by the gifts and not by the giver, capital G. John Piper's ministry in America is built around the strapline. You've probably heard it before. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Beautiful strapline. In fact, that is the end goal of the entire Bible. The Bible keeps urging us towards that as we wrestle with all the idols that we put in place of God Himself, that the culture beckons us to put in place of God Himself, that our own flesh desires instead of God Himself. And God points here to what the ultimate issue is. Ultimately, these people in Israel, they were robbing God of His glory. That's why God wants His people to build the temple. It's not that God needs a shiny new building. He already owns the entire universe. But God says, verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I might take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. The Westminster Catechism opens with that great line, Man's chief end, in other words, the whole reason why we exist on this blue planet, man's chief end 
is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the lie that we are being taught by Satan and the culture all around us is that we can be ultimately satisfied by something, anything outside of God, by something He has made, by money, by sex, by self-image, by consumerism. We can be satisfied by those things rather than God Himself. That is just a lie, and you will find out one day that that is a lie if that's what you're living for. But as St. Augustine said, and St. Augustine had spent much of his early years living a pleasure-seeking life by his own admission. He had, he had looked for beauty in all kinds of things, and he threw himself into whatever beauty he saw. And he ended up fathering several illegitimate children, because one of the main beauties was the beauty of a woman's body. He looked for beauty in so many things, in different relationships. But at the end of it all, when he came to faith, this is what he said. He said, Lord, you made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless. We will always be restless when we're chasing after gifts rather than the giver. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Now, it may seem unfair and stingy of God to bring frustration into our lives when we are pursuing something other than Him, but ultimately, He does that for our blessing. He wants our joy as well as His glory. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God wants our satisfaction, our ultimate joy. He simply knows that we cannot find ultimate joy outside of Him. The rest of the world tells us that, of course, so we're constantly being bombarded with these two issues. Me or the world? Which do you want? But of course, more than our own satisfaction, it is a crime. It is a cosmic crime to love created things more than we love the Creator, who is the source of all life. He is the sum of all perfections. We should love Him just for who He is. And to put this in really practical terms, you may have been facing financial difficulty recently in Aberdeen. Lots of people have. Perhaps losing your job or facing pressure at work you've never known before. It's happened to many Christians. It is horrible when it happens for more reasons than just financial. But those unsettling moments of life should make us pause and reflect. Is God trying to say something to me here? Particularly when you know in your heart that it is ultimately God who is in charge of the price of oil. God is in charge of the state of the Aberdeen economy and whether you've got a job or don't. He's in charge of all of that. And God, I think according to Haggai, Haggai teaches us this, God intentionally unsettles His people to make us ask the ultimate question, whether He is the true priority in our lives, or whether we are trusting in other things to give us joy and security. God wants to be so much our joy and security, the rock on which we stand, that we can handle it even when we lose our job, even when we face great uncertainty in our family, even when our health leaves us. He's still the rock. The hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly cling 
to Jesus' name. If that really is true for you, then you will feel free in your heart to give gladly to God, even beyond your means. Paul praises the Macedonian churches because they gave beyond their means. You feel free to do that without an instant of doubt because Jesus is more precious to you than your most valued possessions. I was in a church, my, my previous church, more than 14 years ago now, met in a, in a lovely church building in Cardiff. I was there for about four years. And I learned the story of that church. Many of the members of that church had remortgaged their homes to pay for the church. So they took on the burden and the potential anxiety of, of higher mortgage payments. And some of these folks had fought to get rid of their mortgage completely. And they'd reached that point, whoa, I'm there now. Got no mortgage anymore. Oh, no, we've got to build a church building. They remortgaged their homes. They accepted mortgages again in order to see the church built and prosper. And the church was built, and it is prospering. That is the kind of thing you can do with freedom and with joy when God is your rock, not your career or your possessions or even your family or your own health. So this is a far-reaching passage. If we are more concerned about our own comfort than we are about God's glory, then God will rightly and wisely and lovingly shake up our lives and remove our satisfaction so that we wake up to Him and give Him the glory He deserves. This giving Sunday, it's uncomfortable, but it's so healthy for us. So it forces us to ask, which is the most important thing in my life? My home or God's home? My work or God's work? My dreams or God's dreams? So if you're following the argument of this passage, Haggai asks us, are we more concerned about our own comfort than we are about God's glory? And he goes on to say, if we are more concerned about our own comfort than God's glory, then God will intentionally leave us dissatisfied until we seek Him. But Haggai closes by saying, if we honor God, if we put Him first, He will bless us. Deadly simple, actually. Verses 12 to 15, lovely verses. If we make God's glory our priority, if we give to Him first and think about our own comfort and security later then He will bless us. He will encourage us. He will reveal His pleasure to us. In verse 12, we're told, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And if you read the whole Old Testament, this was pretty rare. We've gone through the whole period of the kings, hundreds of years, where no one obeyed the voice of God. They're obeying again, which means they stopped working on their own homes and they started rebuilding the temple. And notice this began with the leaders. Actually, this whole prophecy, if you look back to the opening verses, this whole prophecy was given to the leaders, Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua. And it's got to start with the leadership of the church. As elders and deacons and home group leaders, we must set the tone and put God's glory ahead of our own comforts. We've got to lead the way in giving. And I challenge myself on that again, I say it. 
But notice here how God responds to his people's obedience. Verse 13 says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. He had been annoyed at them and angry at the beginning of the passage. By the end of the passage, I am with you. And it is a wonderful thing to get to the point in life when the only thing that matters to us is that God is with us, that what we are doing is pleasing to Him, regardless of what it means to people around us, regardless of what the culture says, regardless of what our family says, regardless even of what it costs us. He's with us. That's all that matters. And if we give sacrificially to God's work, He will be with us. That's what this passage seems to be saying, 100% guaranteed. And I want you to notice that something starts to happen among these Israelites when they make the decision together to give and put God first. They don't just receive the promise that God is with them, precious though that is. We're told here that God started to stir them. They obey and God stirs them. Not God stirs them and then they obey. They obey, and God starts stirring them. Verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Israel is being stirred here. And I mention that today because I believe that God is stirring things in this church right now. They're hard things to put into words, but I think that's happening perhaps more so than at any times in my 14 years here. He's stirring things right now. The increased focus on prayer, the number of newcomers coming through the church, the renewed focus on mission and personal evangelism this last year in particular. And I've had now several comments from different members of D-Side saying something to the effect that the Spirit is stirring us. I'm almost scared to agree, to be honest, but many of us are saying this. Are you feeling it? And if we added to our increased focus on prayer, an increased focus on evangelism, an increased focus on giving, then who knows what God might do here and now through us in this generation. Now, I'm reticent to say more than that. But I think anybody who's looking at what's happening in the church this last year in particular, I'm ready to say no one can deny that God is at work in fresh ways in this church right here and right now. His Spirit is stirring us. And the prayer, the rather frightened prayer of my own heart and for all of us is, let Him have His way among us. I wonder of those three things, prayer, evangelism, and really sacrificial giving, which is the hardest nut of those three to crack in your life? More prayer, more evangelism, more giving. Which of those three, and behind each of these, of course, is an idol? If I struggle to pray, there's an idol. If I struggle to witness, there's an idol. If I struggle to give, I'm not giving. There's an idol. Which of those three is the toughest for you?
what if we as a church in 2018 that we are now, what if we, to put it crudely, nailed those three by the power of the Spirit of God? I think the cork would come off the bottle. And God would do things in our church that he has never done before. I was thinking, and I'll, I'll close here, I promise. I was thinking, some of you will look at your lives now and you'll think, I'm closer to the end of the road than I am to the beginning. I've been here quite a while now. And if you've been brought up in this church, you'll have seen God do some good things. He has been faithful. And God has been faithful to this church over a generation in some amazing ways. But I don't think we have yet reached a point where we can say there has been an outpouring. Why not? And might it be the most exciting thing in our lives to go home and say, before I die, before they write the name on my tombstone, I will see an outpouring in my church and in this area, in my generation. I want to long for that. And I say that literally, I want to long for that. I'm scared of what it'll take to get there. But I hope we're all longing for that. So let's think about this challenge from Haggai. If we're more concerned about our own comfort than God's glory, God will leave us dissatisfied. But if we honor him, he will bless us, he will be with us, and he will stir us by his spirit, perhaps in a way we have never known before. And his kingdom will truly come among us. I just leave that with you today to consider. Let's just take a moment of quiet. Our time is just about gone anyway. Just take a moment of quiet. This is your chance to respond to God. What's he been saying to you? And Lord, will you stir us? Father, we know that there are times in our lives to be still and know that you are God. And there are other times in our lives to reach into our pockets and show that we know you are God. Help us to know what the time is right now in this church. We pray this for your glory. Amen.